It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, as well as uh, anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. Uh, Ottawa 95.7, Toronto 106.5. If you type in those coordinates, as well as ELMNTFM on your Radio Player Canada app, you can listen on your uh, device of choice and the station you wish to listen to uh, anywhere across the country, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And also, uh, you can also visit our website, elmntfm.ca, uh, where you can also choose the station you would like to listen to, uh, get a sense of our on-air personalities, uh, see what else we're up to as well, and uh, you can listen online there as well, and uh, go back and listen to our SoundCloud, where we do uh, put all of our previously recorded uh, conversations and interviews in our SoundCloud. So if you miss something, you can go there to uh, check it out. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Norma Dunning, and she is an Inuit writer, she's a scholar, she's a researcher, and a grandmother. I have to put that one in there for sure as well. And uh, she is a uh, professor at the University of Alberta, and it's a pleasure to have her on the show. Now, we're talking about uh, something that uh, Norma actually updated her article on this, I see. Uh, it's an article in The Conversation, uh, title being, Edmonton Eskimos Should Follow Washington Redskins and Drop Its Racist Team Name. Uh, that is, the, is what we're talking about. But, Norma, if you don't mind, because I was looking at a little bit of, of what you, you write, what you're doing, and you have, uh, you have some publications coming out. You have a collection of poetry called Eskimo Pie. And uh, poetics of Inuit identity. Uh, this can, it's published in June of this year. Uh, congratulations, first of all. You have another one of short stories uh, titled Tiana, and that's the unseen ones, and that's going to be released in January of 2021. Um, but the idea, and of course, you've been a long-standing, uh, outspoken person about the es- Edmonton Eskimos changing the name. So I guess I have to ask you, why choose the name Eskimo Pie for your for your book? Uh, well, it has to do with um, when I started to write this collection. Mm. I, you know, just inadvertently, I don't even really recall how I managed, but I ended up just on the Wikipedia site for... Eskimo Pie and started to read that history of how, you know, how this ice cream treat mm. was uh, was brought into being and then being mass produced and off it went into the world. And so while this ice cream treat is coming along, here we have Inuit people globally who are living with huge disparities. Mm. And there's just this kind of irony that lays within that. And, and even the name Eskimo pie, which I mean, that has been dropped by the Mm. manufacturer as of now. Mm -hmm. And uh, they'll rebrand that ice cream bar. But it, you know, it's kind of a play on um, how people think of Mm. Inuit people Mm. And what the word Eskimo does to ourselves yes. as readers, when we see that, you know, what do we think of? And all the words that we produce, whether we're writing or speaking, um, they, they produce images. 
Mm-hmm. And so it's uh, that that was um, a big driving force within this collection. And I am a Southern born and raised Inuit person. And there's this uh, concept that if you are not born and raised in the North, uh, you therefore are not traditional, you are not mm-hmm. authentic, mm-hmm. you don't count. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate, but the way the land claims are designed and my home area would have been Nunavut Mm. and I am a beneficiary of Nunavut as are my sons. Uh, The way it works for us is when we are living outside of that land claims area, we are not, we don't have full access to Mm. the benefits that the the claim has, has, you know, been providing Mm. for those who live in the North. And so there's this real sense of, uh, I guess, like a diaspora where, where you're not, um, you know, where you're living in the South and people think that you, you aren't real. And I get mm. so, many, so many crazy questions that come to me. And so the people in the South kind of think, well, she's not real. But the people, the Inuit in the north, have said similar things to me as well. Because, mm. well, you're you don't live up here, right? You know, so you end up in this kind of limbo uh, base, yeah. And it's working through that identity and claiming it. And mm. I think, especially, especially younger Inuit people, they just have to learn how to own it, mm. and. Um, I mean, that takes time. That takes sure. time. So that's what I talk about. I talk about this um, growing up in the South and being raised in a family where being Inuit wasn't spoken of, even mm-hmm. though you know that you're not white, but mm-hmm. you don't know what you are. And I talk about that, about the, you know that journey of being a little girl and then finally just getting to a place where it's like, well, this is what I am and that's all there is to it. And if other mm. people don't like it, well, that's something they have to deal with, not me. Right. <laughs> right Cause you can't change, we can't change who we are. Can we, that's true. That's so uh, true. you know, I'm, I'm, it's really interesting to hear you say that. And I'm sure you, you probably realize you're not alone in those, those things that you've raised, even for uh, indigenous people that have been raised either outside of their communities. Uh, many of them, including myself, feel, have often felt that same thing. Uh, so I can readily uh, uh, understand exactly where you're coming from with those comments. Oh, thank you. You know, um, I believe it's, well, it's, between 60 and 65% of all Indigenous people mm. are living outside of their mm-hmm. reservations or their home communities. Mm. And, I mean, there's a reason why we leave. And and I, I think people, you know, their assumption is that, well, you're only Inuit if you're from the North, if you eat raw meat, and mm. if you speak the language. Mm. So I just spent, you know, I've just spent 61 years of my life disappointing people. (laughs) 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 I'm really good at that. I'm really good at being able to disappoint people. (laughs) And of course, the other thing is that uh, you're you're an expert, right? 
Oh, that's true. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Isn't it? Um, and, you know, it's almost as ridiculous as I know when I've traveled in, in the U.S. and, you know, American people were always very, very good to me and I'm there mm. as a traveler. But mm. when I would say, I learned to say, you know, I am from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and there's always somebody who would say, hey, I know John Smith, he lives in Toronto, do you know him? <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, it's, it's that uh, kind of ridiculousness, like, that's right. how, how silly it can be that, you know, you're the expert, mm. and, um, and it's, it's unfair. It's really an unfair position to put mm -hmm. any Indigenous person into. Yeah. Yes. And to me... What I, when people are asking those expert questions, I, um, that's when I, you know, I recognize that they don't understand a lot of Indigenous Canadian history. And, right. uh, and so in a way, they can get a pass from me. Mm. But at the same time, I think, you know, we, we do have re responsibility to mm. inform ourselves. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so I understand the whole, uh, yeah, you're the expert. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, know. I know, I've been there myself, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, getting back to the, the Edmonton uh, team and uh, getting their name, wanting to get their name changed, um, do you think that the fact that the Washington team has now decided to make this change, it will put some additional pressure on Edmonton to, to get their name changed? Definitely. And what has uh, happened locally as well is Bel Air Direct has removed yeah. their sponsorship until a name change. And That's yesterday, right. an online gambling network has uh, removed their support. So what's happening slowly, but it's happening, is that the sponsorship is depleting. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, it, it really does put a lot of more pressure on them. And for me, I've been at this for about seven years. And I noticed that. Yeah. What I have seen this time is that more people are on board for a name change. And mm. for me, that's, you know, it's very positive. It's very promising. Mm. And usually it's just my old mouth running on and on and on. Or I write an article and I, mm. I get back the most horrible comments. I can't even really? believe that people can talk to one another the way, mm. the way the comments come back to me. And I've learned to just never read them. I just right. I, I don't read any comments on the articles that I've had published concerning mm. the name. And it, it's just um, it's just I don't need that negativity and it doesn't yep. do anything. Sure. But I think right now, like right now, the momentum is strong, and I think there will be a change, and hopefully by the end of this month. Mm. You know, uh, of course, they they have said they have had consultations in the past that uh, they've reached out to to uh, the the Inuit community and have uh, and have uh, asked the question about the name, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you you also say that they've done this before, right. and I noticed in in I noticed speaking of uh, comments online, I did notice uh, when they they last put out a comment. Um, they 
they said to Inuit peoples, and and that was sort of a you know why would you say people people twice? Uh, and so I thought, yeah, and that's when when the comments I was starting to see some of those comments come back saying, well, how much consultation could they have had if they if they couldn't even get that right sort of thing? So yeah, um, um, overall that team, whoever is behind that kind of um, going out and mm. going into the north and now they they issued a survey yesterday to season tickets holders only mm. Mm. and well that's a very limited audience and mm -hmm. how many of those ticket holders are Inuit and I would think zero and, mm. and here in Edmonton the population is at 1200 Mm -hmm. And um, why aren't they talking to us? We're we're here. Right. We're in your backyard, and right. you know they can say, "Well, we went north, and there was a guy who said he didn't have a pro an Inuit guy right. who said he mm -hmm. did not have a problem with the name." Right. But right. that's all it ever takes, you know, David, sure. is to have one voice <laughs> right. that says, "Oh, you know." Even as far as this, that one voice that will say, "Well, at least uh, you know, I don't, I don't think residential school was all that bad," <laughs> and and right. that one voice that is yep. in opposition to mainstream or who is on board mm -hmm. with an issue that is very troubling, mm -hmm. uh, that voice will be carried yes. around the world. Right, and, and so the you know for them to say that they've because they're doing these supposed surveys over and over again, they never release any of their data, mm. and so what can I you know how can anybody think well this is valid? Mm. A survey could be you and I, <laughs> we could do right. a survey right now. Sure. Um, you know, do you like salt and pepper? I don't know. Right. So we can do something that's simple and say that we've created a survey and that we have data and we're not going to release the information based on FOIP. But if mm. you're a good ethical researcher, you will release that information and sure. you will have had people sign off on an ethics um, form. Yes. Yes. So for me, a lot of what they say is very flimsy, and I think that overall they're very underinformed about Inuit Canadians. Right. You're listening to LMFM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest is Norma Dunning. She is Dr. Norma Dunning, in fact, and she is an Inuit writer, a scholar, and researcher. She is a professor at the University of Alberta and, I might add, an award-winning writer. And it's a pleasure to have her on the show. We're talking about an article that she wrote uh, entitled Edmonton Eskimos Should Follow Washington Redskins and Drop Its Racist Team Name. Um, you know, in, in light of all this, uh, Norma, I'm... I'm, I'm I don't know how much of the players are involved in this at all uh, for the Edmonton team, but I would, I mean, I'm guessing and I'm assuming that the players of color on the team might have something to say about this. It's interesting because we don't hear from them. Mm. And, you know, it, it could very well be that um, 
they may, you know, I don't know why we don't hear from them. And what we're really, to me, what we're really talking about here in a name change is that we all have to examine our own sense of racism. And we mm. don't like that. It makes us uncomfortable. Mm. And we have to think about, well, because what I often hear is, you know, Eskimo is only a word. Mm-hmm. It's just a word. And my comeback lately has been, well, why don't we call them the Eskimo dummies? Dummies <laughs> is only a word. Right. So, you know, people, and it, it, it's not fun to have to make that kind of, um, kind of huge dramatic type of opposition statement. But mm. I think sometimes you have to go to an extreme to have people really think. Yeah. You know, to, to put it in perspective. That's because... what it comes down to, David. People don't mm. want to examine their own, their own sense of what is racism. How come when I hear the word Eskimo, I think of a guy at a sealed breathing hole with a harpoon in his right hand. Mm -hmm. It's uncomfortable for people. Yes, it's true. Uh, It conjures up images uh, and uh, how relevant, one, first of all, how relevant are those images at all to begin with uh, for the team? And two, uh, as you point out in your article, you know, harmless, the word is, a, you know, it's harmless, it's a word. Well, harmless to whom? And, 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 and what, is it, uh, what is it perpetuating by using that name over and over again? What, what is the, you know, the overall effect of that for, uh, for the, the Inuit people um, whom this name is associated with? So uh, there's those things. And, and you also point out that, you know, whenever I hear stuff like this, it, it does... Um, um, well, just when you hear things like, oh, well, we've invested so much money in merchandise, we've invested so much money in the team, uh, you know, blah, 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 it's associated with this. But they are all weak arguments, uh, I, I think, in terms of what is being, what is being uh, proposed just by what you said. Well, if it's only a name, then what's the big deal in changing it? Right, uh, and you know, people will always fall back on that merch um, mm. argument, where I've had said to me, "Well, you know, I've been buying, you know, merchandise from the team for the last twenty years, and and I think, well, good for you, mm. well, like good for you. You have that right. much disposable income, you know, mm-hmm. but." Um, to me, it, it isn't an argument. It's ridiculous. It, it's mm. something, but it, it's it's a common comeback that mm. I receive. And um, you know, why are we worried about some guy's merchandise over the harm that right. the Eskimo can cause future generations? I think that is more important than some guy having a jersey. Well, you know, and and the other thing you point out is that they've they've made uh, a huge amounts of money off of the name, mm-hmm. and yet uh, none of that, I'm assuming, any of any portion of that has ever gone back to benefit the the Inuit people. Um, and I, I'm I'm guessing also, you know, they could look at this another way. What might? How do they know by changing the name? It might be a great. Uh, way of reinventing the, the 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 team and might provide even even more success uh, in in many ways. E- maybe in in merchandising. Who knows? 
who knows? I mean, people would have to rebuild their collection. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so then they'd have a collection <laughs> item, a collectible there item. that there. aspect to it. Yeah. But, um, you know, it, it, I don't know why people just can't let it go. Because when we think of all the horrible names that other ethnicities are called, mm -hmm. and we don't dare speak those words or put those words into print, and when we have a word like Eskimo, which is a word that Inuit people have never used to describe themselves. And, and why can't we put that word Eskimo into those same kind of um, racist speak, you know, mm. speaking and writing. And mm. People don't seem to be able to make that correlation between racist slurs of an ethnicity mm. and racist slurs of an indigenous ethnicity. Right. So it's like there's this uh, distinguishment between the two, but pe it's just like people can't connect them, you know, mm. inside their own mm. heads. So I mean, all we can do is just keep talking about it until there right. is a change. Right. It would be very nice to uh, speak with you again once we find out which, whichever way the team is going to go with this and, and do a follow-up with this, perhaps prior to uh, the fall season when perhaps, uh, you know, if there is a, uh, you know, a, a football season, uh, then, you know, it might be a great time to, to follow up with you on this to, to catch up. Either way, um, if, you're, if you're up for that. Oh, for sure, David. Um, uh, do you know much about the, the history of the name itself? Um, the history, I think originally they were called the Edmonton Elks. And I'm sorry, I, I, sorry, the name Eskimo. The name, yeah. oh, the name yeah. Eskimo, you know, my yeah. understandings are the same as everybody's, whereby yeah. um, initially it was uh, an explorer mm. from Europe who made, well, made use of the word in print. Mm. And then that's that's in like the mid 1500s, and then you mm. come ahead into the 1650s, and mm. the word Eskimo is being used on HBC ledgers. Mm. And um, I know that the you know the Cree will say you know, eaters of raw meat, and Ojibwe will say you know she who makes snowshoes. Mm. But uh, what we have to remember in all of it is. We never called ourselves that. right. And exactly. For me, I'm Padlai Inuit, and mm. for for my Inuit, we were considered to be the people of the willow or the mm. people from beyond. Mm. So there wasn't a um, how do you say that? There wasn't anything that was reflective of location, skin color, eye color, like nothing right. like that. Yes. When you look at indigenous languages that is not how we described one another right so right. um I, and i think a lot of people don't know that and i know that there was a company here in edmonton a re called eskimo refrigeration <laughs> mm. and so when i went and there was i drove by it a couple of times and and i just thought that's crazy i can't believe it that people yeah are still using this as, you know, using right. that word in business. But I mean, if you have a team with the visibility that the Edmonton team has, and they're making use of that word, it green lights everybody else to make use. Of course it, it does. 
Yeah, of course. That's right. Uh, Norma, it would be really interesting to see what uh, comes out of this and how they proceed and w- what they proceed with, of course, in, in trying to decide on whether to keep the name or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's hope there's a positive outcome for uh, the name being changed. Uh, and as you say, uh, sponsors are dropping and sponsors do mean money. Um, and if that's the case, then uh, that would probably, as you say, put extra pressure on the team to look at this uh, in a much more uh, serious light. I hope so. And uh, once again, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Norma. And I look forward to having you back on to continue our conversation once we know what's going to what, what the, the team is, is going to decide to do. That sounds great, David. I appreciate your time. I thank you very much for letting this old voice get out there again. (laughs) (laughs) It's our pleasure. (laughs) Our pleasure. Uh, Dr. Norma Dunning is an Inuit writer, scholar, researcher, and grandmother. She's also a professor at the University of Alberta, an award-winning writer, I might add, as uh, as I said. And uh, she has a second collection of short stories entitled Tiana, and that's the Unseen Ones. It's going to be released in January of 2021. And uh, she also has some uh, Annie Muktuk and other stories. It was awarded the Danuta Gleed Award in 2018 and the uh, Howard O'Hagan Award and uh, was shortlisted for the City of Edmonton Book Awards. It's been a pleasure having her on, on the show, and it's always a pleasure to have you listening to the program. Don't go away, because we'll be right back with more right after this, right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, and of course, anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, Type in 1065 ELMNTFM or 957 ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Ramsey Dennison. He's a uh, producer of a new film, Money Machine, exposes massive police corruption, cover up surrounding the Las Vegas mass shooting. Ramsey, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. I, I have to tell you that uh, this is an incredibly powerful film. Thank you. Uh, I, I did get a chance to, of course, uh, view it. And uh, from the very start, uh, a lot, a lot in this film. So much to take in, so much to uh, look at. You, you know, it, it's interesting. I'm going to jump in a, in a couple of places here because... Um, I'm I'm not even sure where to where to start with this. Yeah, uh, there's so a lot many to th- it, man. Believe me, that's why it took a couple of years to make the film. I yeah, mean, I bet. So much to it. You had to, and it had to be pared down into a digestible, clear, coherent manner. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think you do a great job of that, and point uh, point out a lot of things uh, it, that are happening in around uh, Las Vegas, uh, how how the city operates. And I guess in some ways it's not a surprise to hear some of the things that you're you're bringing forward, of course. Uh, but it is, is in some ways, of course, disheartening uh, to hear about, you know, the situation around the victims of what took place I- involved with the shooting uh, and MGM, etc. Um, and I guess, uh, you know, what's interesting is that the characters that you bring forward um, and and uh, show us in this film. Um, it, it really is a, a quite a, a fascinating look at, um, at at what took place and how how this city operates. Even even bringing it right up to the COVID nineteen situation and and what we see officials 
you know, how they're dealing with the city and what they what they're saying about, uh, you know, reopening it and using it as a as a sort of a test market. Is kind yeah, of, no, it just whoa. shows that, you know, when Mayor um, Carolyn Goodman did that clip on Anderson Cooper, mm. um, you know, open the city, you know, we don't it was like <laughs> open the city. We don't care if tourists get covid and take it back to, you know, Omaha or, or Boston or whatever and make the problem 10 times worse. We don't care if the U.S. gets wiped out with covid. Um, well, you know, because yeah. money, 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 you know, and, and you can yeah. really see that that was a subtext of what Mayor Goodman was saying, you know, obviously the money, the Vegas money is what puts her in power. And it, it appeared that the Vegas money was leaning on her pretty good to mm. uh, get the registers ringing again, you know? And yeah, so that's, and why we, that's why we thought it was um, that it fit well in the film because it fit thematically, even though the movie's about one October, um, you know, very little in Vegas is ever about anything other than money. And so the COVID situation um, was kind of a reminder of that. So yeah, it, probably didn't want to be in the film, but, mm. um, you know, she kind of put herself in there with her, um, behavior. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true enough. And, and, you know, we, we've jumped in with the, with the COVID thing, but, uh, having said that, uh, it really does touch on, uh, uh Las Vegas itself, as you said, how the city revolves around that process of money. Uh, you know, just going back to that, that COVID thing and what the mayor was saying though, is that, you know, just to, to say, We'll use we'll use Las Vegas sort of as this test market to find out, you know, yeah. uh, which is not a closed city as you just mentioned. People would be leaving and coming back. It was it was quite funny, and to see uh, Anderson Cooper's reaction and and just to hear how he dealt with that as well was yeah, was, no, it was, and you know, I think Anderson Cooper was just representing the you know a regular reasonable person there. I mean, mm. I mean, he was you know Anderson Cooper's done a gosh, how many interviews has he done? And yeah. but he had clearly never seen anything quite like. Carolyn Goodman and just watching yeah. him react like he just could not believe the stupidity that was coming out of this woman's mouth <laughs> you know yeah. and so when yeah. you watch him and his reaction you know it's not easy to fluster someone like Anderson Cooper <laughs> he did it true enough uh, so let's go back you know to to how this all started for you uh, why did you think it was important to make this film and and you know, as I said, right from the get-go, you have some really powerful first-hand video coming from off of the iPhones uh, of the people that, that were in uh, that, that shooting situation, uh, October 1, uh, and, and uh, that is, is incredibly powerful stuff. Yeah, so the reason I made the movie was, um, I'd actually made, my previous film was called What Happened in Vegas, and that was about police corruption in, in Vegas and the, within the LVMPD. And that movie had, you know, like made a lot of noise in Vegas. It got the top awards from the year before. And so mm. everybody in town, a lot of people in town knew about that film. And so what happened was the movie was done and it was slated to be released right around Thanksgiving of 2017. So, um, you know, so that movie was done. And as it happened, I, I was actually in Vegas, you know, in the day of one October. And we were just kind of mm. there, you know, I live in Los Angeles and we we're just kind of there on, um, you know, celebrating and, and watching football and, you know, just kind of having fun. And, mm. um, and then what happened, of course, was, uh, you know, it was pretty much just another day. And then as we were driving back home, um, actually got my, got my butt kicked pretty good in the sports book that day. Didn't <laughs> lost, lost the football games we wagered on. So it was one of those like <laughs> long, um, rides home from mm. Vegas through that, through that cold desert, you know? And so, right. so it was just, you know, it was just kind of a regular day. And then at about 10 30, that night, 
my phone just started blowing up about one October. And, and originally people had told me that like a couple, there was a shooting at the concert and a couple people that died. And, and that was just because they told like right after it happened, that's what people knew. And then it was only the next day when I woke up and it was on every television station, mm. you know, that 58 people had died and that this had been yeah. a massive event. And then right. almost immediately because of the relationships I had with um, retired LVMPD officers. Um, mm. So actually what happened was when I made what happened in Vegas, it, it had a very unexpected result, which was, you know, I, I thought that I was going to be burned at the stake for making a film right. like this in Vegas. And that, you know, sure. that, that walking into Vegas would be, tough because we'd ex I'd exposed a powerful and corrupt police department. Mm -hmm. But what actually happened was kind of interesting. It turns out a lot of officers had left the department because of the corrupt leadership. And so mm. those people kind of admired what I was doing because, mm. you know, I mean, they're retired now and, and you know, they, they, they stay in touch with the other cops. And there was just a lot sure. of talk about how this de department had fallen. And, and so all these guys wanted. Um, and so these guys actually reached out to me. And kind of got on my team and said, I like what you're doing. They, 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 you know, they used to say the enemy of my enemy is my ally, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and so to them, you know, we had, you know, the corrupt sheriff was their enemy. And so they liked that I was actually cutting through the BS and exposing what was really going on. Because in Vegas, you have a media that um, really kind of kowtows to the big money. It's, it's, it's incredible the extent to which they leave crimes unreported. And... Um, and just just tell a very small part of the story. It's it's not something you see in a lot of cities. I mean, I mean, you know, New York Times, you know, they don't hesitate at all to go after somebody like Harvey Weinstein. I mean, look away, right. you know. So, but but Vegas is an entirely different animal. You know, it's a city where, you know, like Steve Wynn was perpetrating his crimes for decades. You know, and nobody mm. and he got away with it. You know, and it was really the Me Too movement that brought all, brought him down, and he had to resign mm. from the board and stuff. But for many decades. Everybody, a lot of people in town knew what Steve Wynn was doing, you know, mm. and, and with women and, and calling mm. him up to his office and stuff. And right. it, it went unreported, you know? Yes. Oh, yeah, it, it's, it, I, as I say, you touch on so many things and you do get some uh, really great, uh, uh, powerful interviews with many people, the victims. Uh, and, and it's really interesting to hear their firsthand experience and really hear what, what they uh, what they were uh, uh, seeing and hearing at the time, but also after the fact, and and uh, there there's just some lines in there that <laughs> there's so many great lines that it's hard to remember them all. You just have to watch the film so that you can capture and ca you know and see all all this and 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 stay on top of it all. It, it you know it starts out with this uh, about October one, as you say. Uh, and, um, and, and you see the, the footage, you see the, the people that are, are being affected, uh, you, you hear about and see about the confusion that's taking place uh, around it as well. Um, I guess the, the one thing that, that, and you, and you keep discovering more and more as you get into this film, so it gets deeper and deeper, which is really fascinating as well. The one thing I wasn't sure about was that the one scene where they're finally, uh, someone says, hey, there's a camera on the side of this building, and I'm wondering, that that captured anything? And then you get to see some footage, uh, some raw footage from that film. It's a rainy night, and it looks like they're pulling some a body or something out of the, out yeah, of the building. Yeah, Ramirez was her name. Yeah, she was one of the 58 who passed away, unfortunately. And, and so what, I, I don't, I wasn't sure what, how that, how that, uh, 
you know, because we weren't sure about what happened there. And I thought, is this separate or is it part of the same? So you've just sort of answered that. But yeah, um, the point of it was that, I mean, you could see that Manalay Bay was right in the background there because um, the shop was maybe four or five blocks. And so mm. it was the point is that for all, you know, the FBI and the LVMPD had talked about how they're doing this comprehensive investigation. Yeah. How many people they have working the case. The point was they hadn't right. even pulled that video. Yeah, right. Yes. So talking about it, you know, like here's this video that captures this crucial area of the event and it takes a, a citizen, a regular guy to actually go and pull that video. And then it ended up on national television on, um, not, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, on Tucker Carlson. Um, yes. And so, um, you know, and that's actually Mike Turber, um, and that, that individual. Mm. And actually he, he's actually done some of the best investigating of one. Yes. And so I actually ended up teaming up with the guy, with him, the guy who pulled that video and he actually became a producer on the film because he was doing a lot of the work that the LVMPD and the Vegas press were not, and he was doing a great job of it. And, and several things he did with one October ended up on the news and, you know, he was able to unearth some discoveries that others were not. I found it interesting that what you were discovering and what you were bringing forward in the film almost, you, you had so much to work with. And I, I guess that was because that was stuff that was not coming forward from the police or the FBI or other uh, the other law enforcement uh, uh, officials. Yeah, it, you so know, what, what actually happened was, um, which, you know, those are like public information documents, um, right? So, so when um, you know, like all the all the police body cam footage, um, yep. you know, all the nine one one calls, all the all the records, etc. You know, that, that belongs to the public. It's public information. And so what the police department did, but, but what a lot of people didn't know is that Sheriff Joe Lombardo was an election year when, when October happened. Yes. And right. so he couldn't be made to, um, you know, so a lot of the suppression of information revolved around the fact that he was running for sheriff and that the truth was there was a lot of incompetence that night on the part of the LBMPD. Yep. And there's a lot of lapses in security that allowed this to happen. So what the LBMPD did, remember, the LBMPD is paid for by the public. They used public funds to hire lawyers and obstruct the release of this body cam footage of these, you know, 911 calls. And, um, and that was another reason the film took a while is because there was a big, you know, seven media organizations had to get together and sue the LVMPD yes. to, get them to release public information documents. You know, and then you have a situation where a police department is using public funds to prevent the release of documents that belong to the public. And you have a, a, you know, it just showed what the department's really about. And that was saving Joe Lombardo's butt during election time. And that and, and, and so what happened was by the time those documents had been released, Lombardo had already been elected sheriff. And uh, one of the and, and so it, it was just a very um, unfortunate situation that you have where somebody would use public funds to um, prevent the release of information that belongs to the public, you know. And it was really, in my opinion, it was all about him. It was all about Joe Lombardo. And um, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, no. It's it's just you're right, and and it's uh, interesting how you bring in all of those uh, all of those elements in the timeline that that uh, you know uh, sort of befalls the, the these these series of things that that happen, and how they all make sense when you stand back and look at them. Um, and and it's a very fascinating film to watch in in, in so many regards to that. Um, as I said earlier, you, you did get some great footage, uh, that was on, um, uh, uh, that what people had from their iPhones. 
and you know, you had a story. There's also a lot of police body cam footage. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. I, I'm going back to the actual uh, one October where you right. have the the people there, you know, in in the concert, and you're getting that footage that you got as well. And 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 you have you have a story right there, of course, just from those victims and the people you speak to about what was happening and and uh, and and the and watching and the confusion that was going on and just hearing their story as they try to escape from from the situation. Uh, fascinating story, of course, when you get this, the woman who, uh, who is not shot, but she is, uh, she escapes this, uh, miraculously, but of course is, uh, is, is, sees two people die right in front of her. She's, she's missed narrowly by bullets herself, but, but sees two other people die. And she gives a, a very graphic description of the man who dies and is trying to help her. And, uh, and, and then what happens after that, she also happens to be, I believe, a lawyer. So you get this other perspective from her later on in the film as well. Yeah. No, she was perfect. I mean, Catherine, I mean, I was so riveted by her story. Yeah. Um, and then the fact that she also turned out to be a lawyer. But, yeah. um, you know, Catherine, Catherine was a lawyer from San Diego who just went to the, you know, she was just a regular person in town having fun at a concert. And a lot of people will tell you that night, had been a wonderful night. I mean, that concert that year had been a tremendous success. People had a great mm. time. And that was the closing night of the Route 91 Festival. And then right. just all hell broke loose. And um, I couldn't believe some of the things Catherine was telling me about how, you know, when she had blood on her after, you yeah. know, in the hotel, when she'd gone back to her hotel and they, you know, when she was crying and hysterical and, and, and yeah. you know, like in the movie, people just walked, like one of the managers walked up and said, um, it, I, I don't know what's wrong with you, ma'am. Are you are you drunk? Um, why do you have yep. spaghetti sauce all over you? It's, so yeah. it was just like there was like no acknowledgement of what had happened, you know. Yeah. And um and so the town moved on almost immediately. Um, you know, the money machine had to keep going. And so um, but Catherine's story in particular, I was riveted by. I just couldn't believe how um, it was like there. There's almost like a denial that this had happened, you know, even though the woman's mm. covered in blood, you know. Yeah. I mean, unbelievable yeah. brain matter on yeah. her shirt and people are, oh, it's going to be okay, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly, uh, exactly. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in uh, Toronto and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day. My guest is Ramsey Davidson. He is a uh, uh, producer of Money Machine. Don't go away because we'll be right back with more right after this, right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in uh, Toronto and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day. My guest is Ramsey Davidson. He is a uh, uh, producer of Money Machine. It's a pleasure to have him on the show. We're talking about the film. We're talking about the characters. We're talking about the, the development of, of One October, which is what uh, it, it, the story uh, starts around and is focused on, but quickly quickly expands to look at the greater picture of Las Vegas. And it, it even gives you a, a sense of the history uh, and how, uh, you know, when Las Vegas changed, what happened there, 
um, and, and how it became what it is today. Uh, Ramsey, I found it interesting, of course, that at one point in, in Las Vegas history, uh, for a brief period of time, I guess there, there was sort of this uh, 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 theme park that was brought in and, and established, but people were spending too much time with their families, not right, going yeah, in to spend yeah, their money enough. They weren't losing. Basically what they figured out, that was in the mid-90s, um, Vegas went through a family-friendly phase, you know, where they were going to try to be almost like a Disneyland kind of thing. Yeah. But what they figured out real quick is that, you know, if, if mom and pop are with the kiddies, you know, you know, playing with Bugs Bunny or whatever, um, yeah. you know, and, and riding uh, Ferris wheels, that they're not in uh, the MGM losing money at the blackjack tape. So it just it just simply wasn't as lucrative. And, and so, you know, like the former mayor told me, he says, uh, you know, if they want Disneyland, they can go 250 miles down the road and catch them in Anaheim. But, you know, if mm. you want to. If you want to gamble, there's no better place than Las Vegas. Yeah. So they kind of got back to, you know, Vegas, to, you know, Sin City. And that was kind of the birth of the what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas slogan mm -hmm. um, that mm -hmm. became famous. Um, but yeah, so they that was a, a, a 180 from the family friendly atmosphere. And so and that's the current Vegas we have today. It's, it's more, you yeah. know, a city that kind of embraces its uh, embraces sin, you know. <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting you use that phrase now uh, after watching your film, uh, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas gives you gives it a whole new meaning uh, right. when you think about it in terms of what the film brings forward. Well, and also they change. I'm, so there's something called the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority, and not many yep. people know about this organization, but they're the ones who um, did the what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas ads. And there's a very interesting thing that not a lot of people know. Um, you know, when you go to Vegas and you check into a hotel, you get what's called a resort fee. And it's quite a bit of money. I mean, a lot of times it's anywhere from 20 to like 40, $45 a night. And mm. what that money does is it goes to something called the Las Vegas Convention Visitors Authority. And they spend a lot of that money advertising Vegas. I mean, mm. they have a budget of, of over $300 million a year. And they spend a lot of – and so there's a lot of money spent on advertising and – um you know, and, and one of the things I came to feel was that it, it was likely that, that um, you know, when you're putting, when you're going to all these stations and networks and spending hundreds of millions on advertising, I think you have a certain amount of power with that. And mm -hmm. um, the question we are kind of examining is, did they use that power to like make one October go away as fast as possible? And is that mm -hmm. why so much is not understood about this event, even, even to this day, you know, and that's one of the reasons that we made Money Machine. And I just right. also want to say that Money Machine is actually available now. Um, okay. It, it, via theatrical at home. Mm. Um, okay. Yeah. Great. Uh, now, the other thing, of course, that we, we haven't s spoken about, which we should also talk about, is that you get into the nitty-gritty of, of the understanding, you know, and it all revolves around, it seems to all revolve around money, um, and, and that is uh, uh, Stephen Paddock and and his whole role in this and how we we see that uh, through the event, but also through his brother Eric uh, and, and interviews that that you got with him. And uh, it, it's fascinating to see because it gives a whole new uh, uh, sort of perspective on why this guy seemed to have uh, done what he did. Absolutely, and I mean, I'll tell you one of the key things that happened was when Mike Turber, who, who the, the gentleman I talked about earlier, who actually found that footage and got it, you know, mm. of, of Melissa Ramirez, um, he was actually, he got in touch with 
Eric Paddock, and he's the one who, and they became friendly. And and, mm. and so when we did an interview with Eric, it just kind of blew our minds um, mm. because Eric was a very honest person. We could just tell yeah. it. He was telling the truth about what drove his brother <laughs> to do this. And yeah. that was that he was angry at being jerked around by the casinos, you know? Yeah. And that was um, a narrative that MGM tried to hide. You know, they tried to hide the fact that this had something to do with revenge. And anger. I mean, you know, there's a reason that Stephen Paddock did this. And there's a reason yes. he did it from where he did it on MGM right. property to leave them right. liable. And ultimately he was successful in that. Um, you know, yeah. there was a lawsuit that MGM had. Yeah. And so, and that's not an accident. And it's, it's kind of disgraceful and, and silly that MGM denies that. Like they, they really try, they, they try to make it sound like, oh no, he, you know, there, there was nothing to the fact that he did this from an MGM property. That's just absurd. Um, mm. Of course that he did it from an end. Of course he did this, did it yeah. where he did it for a reason. And I think the reason they've tried to suppress that narrative is because if it came out that, you know, 58 people died and hundreds were injured because, you know, they deceived this guy and he was angry with them. Yep. Um, that's obviously not going to be good for MGM. So I think they behaved in their self-interest and buried that narrative, but it's part of the story. And, um, you know, a lot of people, and, and the other thing I want to say is, you know, people say, well, he was mad about getting, you know, jerked around by the casinos who went up and shot a group of people. That's absurd. And listen, I completely agree. There's nothing justified or reasonable or acceptable about what he did, but there is a reason why he did it. And, um, yeah. but, you know, and, and, and the other thing is, well, I can't understand why he did that. Yeah. I mean, the guy's a freaking madman. You know, he opened mm -hmm. fire on you know, he killed 58 people at a concert. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, of course you can't understand a madman. I mean, can you understand Timothy McVeigh? Can you understand mm -hmm. Jeffrey Dahmer? Not everything mm -hmm. is, um, can, can really like, yeah, as a regular sensible person, it's hard to understand why he did what he did, but there is a reason why he did it and it's not okay, but there is a reason, you know? And, and it does point out some things. I mean, it's a very, very, you know, taking this down to a very basic level, it shows you that relationship that he had with MGM and the casinos and uh, uh, how he he changed and what happened in, I guess, Reno, where he was, uh, you know, working out of there. And then he changed, he went here. He was getting these perks. He was getting all this stuff, but he was seeing, we, we got to see the changes of how casinos uh, also uh, have changed their game. And that was part of this process of what we were seeing through through what was happening with him. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he did start out in Reno and that's actually where I started, you know, when I found out this information about from his brother that he started in Reno, um, we kind of went to Reno and, and, um, and it was ultimately the same thing. You know, Steven Paddock was pretty successful in Reno. He, he was doing pretty well. And when they figured out that they weren't going to make a lot of money off this guy, they started, um, you know, kind of cutting off the comps and stuff. And at one point mm -hmm. he even had, you know, as, as we go in the film, he had an entire floor of the Atlantis yeah, Resort. You know? That's right. Yeah. That's how it would a big time with this guy. And Stephen Paddock had yeah. his whole family there, you know. So, yeah. um, but then once there wasn't money to be made off him, they slowly started taking things away. And that was kind of, as his brother said, they kind of pushed him out of Reno. And so he headed yep. down the road and went to Vegas. Yeah. It, it, it's a fascinating film, uh, Ramsey. Uh, congratulations on this, and and thank you for bringing all of these stories forward. You know, there's so many things we could talk about and touch on. It, it would be great if everyone just uh, went and watched the film. Uh, if they have a, the availability to, to, as you say, watch it uh, at home. Uh, it's called Money Machine. It exposes it exposes the mass uh, massive police corruption, the cover up surrounding the Las Vegas mass shooting uh, one October. 
uh, and is set for North American release uh, beginning July 3rd. But as he uh, Ramsey said, it is available now. Um, is there any one thing that we haven't touched on, Ramsey, that you think uh, that we that you'd like people to know or or to say before um, we just wrap up? Just that, like, if you if you want to watch the film, you go to theatricalathome.com and click Money Machine. And basically, the theaters that book the film are closed down due to COVID. Yes. So you can select any of the theaters from the list, you know, and there's theaters in Canada in there. And um, and, and so part of your donation uh, or part of that money goes to the theaters to who booked the film to support, help support mm-hmm. them while they're down during the COVID, you know. Right. Um, COVID's wreaked havoc on independent cinema and the theaters, yeah. um, which sure are has. pretty small mom and pop operations. So that's why we participated yeah. in this program, you know. And what, that was help, called? Help the people that was, who helped us. Yeah, that's great. What, what was that called again? Theatrical at Home. Dot com. Okay. Uh, listen, do a vir- it's virtual cinema where people can stream yeah, the movie um, anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, regardless great. of the theater that they select. All right. Uh, listen, there is one other thing I, I thought about, and that is that you get some some uh, interviews from people that live in Vegas as well about about all of this, and they're the real people that live in the cities. What was your sense of 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 what they feel about their town these days? I think a lot of them. The thing I kept hearing over and over, and that's why we ended the film the way we did, is that the town was better when the mob ran it. I mean, and that's <laughs> a hell of a statement um, <laughs> yeah. that the corporations, um, you know, people would tell you that it was it was safer in Vegas. Mm-hmm. When the, see, the truth was when the mob ran it, their main crime was really skimming money from the casinos. They yeah. were you know, skimming money, not paying taxes on it. But the, but the mob was also, they didn't want any anything done that would attract the Fed's interest. So. Mm-hmm. They didn't like the Fed snooping around on their turf. So, therefore, Vegas was a pretty safe place in the old days. Vegas yeah. in the 50s, 60s, 70s. People would tell you they'd leave their doors unlocked. And, you know, there was just, and if the mob did need to take care of somebody, they, they drove them out to San Bernardino or, or yeah. um, you know, the Arizona line and took care of it there. That's but right. they never wanted anything to happen on their turf that would draw interest of the Fed. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and but the other thing about the mob that you'll hear over and over is that they were generous people. Um, you know, the, like the attitude back then was, you know, come on and play. And, you know, and, and, and they were generous with the comps and they're generous mm. with the drinks. And it wasn't mm-hmm. this kind of ticky tack thing where they keep track right. of, oh, you've played an average of such and such an hour. So here, so you can have, um, you know, one six ounce Diet Coke, you know, but that's <laughs> it. <laughs> you know, right. and so now. You know, so it's just the Vegas of yesterday was a far more generous place yeah. um, and less kind of a ticky tack petty place. And it was just a place that people like more, you know, and I'm not trying right. to glamorize the mob, but um, yeah. in many ways, the corporations are worse than the mob in terms of their greed, yeah. you know, even yeah. to the point where they sued the victims of a mass shooting to protect their liability, you know, absolutely. Which we also go into them. Yeah, absolutely. And and of course, uh, what we're really setting up here is for people to go and watch the film because they're going to get all those details and more when they do watch Money Machine. Uh, director Ramsey Davison brings this film to life for us all and exposes the m- massive uh, police corruption, the cover-ups uh, around 1 October, and uh, much, much more. So please, I recommend everyone go to watch this and uh, and see for yourself exactly what is being presented here. Ramsey, it's been a real pleasure speaking with thank you. you. We really thank you for taking the time to, ju- to join us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a you good bet. one. Take, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Ramsey, De- Ramsey Dennison, and he is the director of Money Machine. It was a pleasure to have him join us on the show. And it's always a pleasure to have you join us on the show as well. And we thank you for listening. We'll see you next time right here on Moment of Truth. 
This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.